Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jamie M. Dagg, a filmmaker whose first feature, River, starred Rasif Sutherland as an American doctor on the run in Laos. His follow-up, Sweet Virginia, is a really satisfying slow burn with John Bernthal and Christopher Abbott as two men on a collision course in a small Alaska town. It's in theaters and on VOD in the U.S. right now, and coming to Canada in the same formulation December 1st. Jamie picked Ron Fricke's Baraka, and I really hope I'm pronouncing Ron Fricke's name right. It's the first time someone's brought a non-narrative project to the podcast, and I was really grateful for the opportunity. Shot all over the planet in 70mm, which was a truly staggering accomplishment then and now when you think about it, it's a compelling look at locations we might never otherwise see, and a stunning meditation on humanity's purpose in the world. Often lumped in with Godfrey Reggio's Katsi trilogy, which is understandable, since Fricky was Reggio's cinematographer on the first film, Kayanis Katsi, Baraka is its own marvelous thing, and I was delighted to be able to sink into it all over again. This is someone else's movie. Baraka has zero influence on me as a filmmaker, um, but it had a profound influence on me as a human being. Okay. In its exploration of our... Um, humanity's relationship with each other and our environment and uh it's uh you know it's like this um it's an examination of life that sort of transcends uh politics transcends culture it transcends um language because there's no dialogue in it and it really just sort of it's a visceral sort of experience that just sort of hits you in the gut now, it's funny, like, I've gone back and rewatched it, obviously, in preparation for this, and, and there's some of the music gets a little bit on the new agey side that yeah. sort of makes me grit my teeth a bit. But it's, I think it's a, it's a visual masterpiece, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, what was your first experience of it? Because it's, like, these films, I mean, you know, Kayana Scotzi is the perpetual well, college that's, movie. Maybe that's made. what I should talk about. Like, so, when I was in grades, that was my first exposure to Ron Fricke, um, mm-hmm. who directed Baraka, but was the cinematographer on Queen Scotsy. Yep. For anybody who doesn't know her, um, uh, so I was probably in grade seven or eight, and back when they much music used to play music videos and stuff, and and they used to have this. I can't. I think it was called the Big Ticket Special. The Monday. It was like they used to show films on Monday after school. Okay. So I would come I home. They remember that. Instead of like tidying the house or doing dishes, you know, I'd be watching television when my mother waiting for my mother to get back from work, and um, and I I still remember this one day, and I think it was like four thirty, and all of a sudden like the screen goes black, and all of a sudden you're like, Gloria, Miss <laughs> Gotsy, and you see these big bold red letters, like, and I was like. It looks like a propaganda film or something like, <laughs> and then it opens with those um, those pictographs from this cave in I don't know I think it was Utah or something like that, and then it smash cuts to this like just plume of flame and smoke and this like dropping ice and I'm like what the fuck is this and then you realize that it's like a, a booster or thruster from a Saturn V rocket yeah, and, yeah. and then you've got pictures of Grand Canyon you've got pipelines and then like atomic bomb blasts and all like backed up by this like crazy um arpeggio hurricane of music from philip glass and i didn't know who philip glass was at the time and or anything like that and i remember my mother coming in you know this is a woman that's working all day and she's got three kids who are unruly and everything like that and she just wants to come in and you know turn to channel five and watch the young and the restless and there's just (laughs) and but yeah i i would i didn't know what to make of it you know, because I was only like in grade seven or eight, and uh, and I hadn't, you know, there where are the words? You know what I mean? Where's yeah. the talking? You know, there's no it. one's explaining anything to me, but I was still like captivated by it. It would be such a young age to experience non-narrative, yeah, like, to to just be abstracted, especially in that particular time too, where you know, pre-internet, you know, where you're exposed to anything out there. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and um, so I didn't, you know. It took me a while. I didn't see it until I was later in high school when I rented the VHS and I finally saw it to in its entirety. Um, 
without my mother switching the channel. Uh, and, and I wasn't really exposed. I didn't know who he was and I didn't even know he was the cinematographer of it, but I was on, I was friends with Brendan Canning. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew him from in high school. Cause I grew up in a small town in Northern Ontario, a place called Timmins. Oh, yeah. Um, and I used to, when I was in high school, I used to sell records out of my bedroom and I had book shows for different bands and stuff like that. So one of the shows I did was for a band that Brendan was in, uh, called Head with the little H in front of it. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew him. And when I after high school, when I moved to Toronto, like the only friends that I knew in Toronto were like people in bands that I had done shows for. And I ended up moving in with the singer from his band, this guy Noah Mintz. Okay. And uh, they invited me to go on tour with them. So I went to, like, I'd never driven across Canada before. So I thought it was a great opportunity to. And so I, I went, and that was. They had the Baraka soundtrack, so it was a constant struggle in the van. Like, what do we listen to? And all I wanted to listen to was metal and punk and hardcore stuff, and they wouldn't let it. And they wanted to listen to John Spencer Blues Explosion or whatever, you know. <laughs> so we'd sometimes just settle on Baraka, especially like those late night drives. And 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 the soundtrack really. Um, one particular piece of music that I always would wait for uh, was that um, this Dead Can Dance track that's really sort of haunting and. Um, Anyways, long story short, I ended up moving to Australia and I kept on hearing, they would always talk, everyone would talk about Baraka and it was showing in 70mm in Sydney and, and, uh, and I had a chance to see it and it really was a transformative sort of experience. So how um, old would you have been at that point? Uh, Early 20s? Oh yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I was probably 20 years old. Okay. Yeah. And it was... Um, so it is, like, college age. It's exactly when everybody yeah, does encounter yeah. these films. But it's still quite a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. Not to date myself here, but <laughs> it was... Uh, yeah, and it really had, uh, like... I guess when you grow up in a place like Timmins, which is pretty much... You know, there's... Not to... We're not like King of the Hill, but there was a Laotian family in Timmins, and there's a couple Chinese families, but it's, and there's obviously a lot of First Nations and stuff, but it's not like a, a really multicultural city. Right. Um, and, and so your, your window to the world pre-internet age is, is, is literally National Geographic, you know? And that's what yeah. we had. Like, like that's those mega. I still remember just rows and shelves of yellow. Those yellow National Geographics. My dear mother, she, she's so funny. She kept them. She's like, oh, I've got all those National Geographics for you. He's like, mom, I don't have like. How am I even gonna get those to Toronto? Like, yeah. a, um, but it, bless her heart. Uh, <laughs> but that was like as a kid. That was I spent hours looking at that stuff. And then they would release like hardcover books with like you know, books on the universe and books on, and that oh, was, yeah, no, I remember those yeah, too. Yeah, like the yeah. reference guides. It's incredible. Yeah. And that, it doesn't mean anything now because again, everything is, uh, you got it all right here, you know, Yeah. in front of you on your computer or phone or on your phone. But it is very difficult trying to explain to people the idea. I was describing microfiche to my nieces. Yeah. Who are like <laughs> 16 and 10. And they're like, what, what is this world? Cause there's a, um, Oh, I can't remember what it was, but there's something, maybe it was Stranger Things or It or something. There's a scene with microfiche somewhere and they were asking That's right. Yeah, if yeah, it's yeah, real. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, that was the only way you could learn things. Yeah. Uh, all the newspapers. I should go to the library and see all the exactly. like, uh, archives and stuff. Yeah. And so, now it's just incomprehensible to them that you yeah. used to have to wait for something, for anything, for information, yeah. entertainment, scheduling. There's an immediacy to everything right now. And it's... So that's a, for to see to see that film at that time. You know, it, it really was. It was. It was like a seventy millimeter version of National Geographic. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it and it and it changed my like. I decided like oh, I'm gonna go to this. I'm gonna go to, to Asia and I'm gonna go to Nepal and I'm gonna go to India and and I, I went and not as I didn't have dreadlocks or but it was just like I just really wanted to. I had no exposure to these cultures other than through the magazines that I'd seen in it. And, and you have that thirst, or that desire to, to learn about people, you know what I mean? And, other th and things outside of the small 45,000 person town that you're living in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, it was really, uh, it, it, there's so many different facets to it. It's, it's the film itself, and but it's also like the, when you get older and you start to, and you got into filmmaking, and because I, I wasn't making films when I was eight years old or anything, like it wasn't something I decided that I wanted to do until I was in my 20s. Okay. Um, and and then you start to get interested, you become interested in the logistics. Like, how do they do this? Like, they shot this, it took them two and a half years to make the film, and they shot in 14 countries. 
Um, yeah, with a Todd AO rig that hadn't been used since I think the early 70s. Yeah, well, that, the, the two cameras they had, the first one, uh, the Todd AO 65mm uh, camera, was, the, was built by Mitchell and it was actually made for Patton. Okay. It was, it was, they used that on Patton. And then Ron Fricke and his producer, Mark Magidson, um, Ron designed and had this through the, the, his producer's company, and they actually like built this camera and they built that entire motion control system oh. like the, the Todd AO camera they had that was only that, the fastest that could that was like a 72 or 76 frames per second camera the one that they built had a maximum uh, frame rate of one frame a second right because it it's just time yeah. lapse and so they, they and they built though and that that motion control um, which had pan and tilt they had you can control the shutter and you could depending on the configuration of the track either dolly or track with it and uh and lugging all this equipment around again shooting five per 65 yeah no it's it's <clears throat> inconceivable to me that you can make a documentary in large format that's yeah. not imax and even imax is incredibly difficult and challenging absolutely yeah and to mount it in the late 80s early 90s is Doubly nuts. Yeah, and just and going to save countries too that were really inaccessible. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was like the shooting all that stuff in Cambodia, in the in Angkor, um, and other places, in, in and around Phnom Penh. It's it's like that wasn't an easy test to get no. permission to go there. There was a civil war, but there was like curfews and stuff, and they're shooting at Angkor, and they they could hear like shells going and bombs going off in the back and deep in the jungle and. Like I was in, I went to Cambodia um, pri- just prior to it opening up. It probably would have been '97. Okay. And even then, it was, you know, it's just things. Just so much has changed in these countries. Like they, they went to Iran, you know, and that was a tough place to go to at the yeah, time. Yeah, as know? Americans too. Yeah, yeah, sure. And not only is it like as as Americans, but we want to bring in these giant cameras and shoot stuff. It's <laughs> like we're sure we're not spies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it, it seemed like this sort of Herculean like task to even pull this thing off. But on top of that, they created this sort of visual language that up to that time hadn't really specifically the mixture of time lapse and motion control. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you we've seen so much of it now. Like I often wonder, somebody watching this for the first time, would it have the same sort of impact? You know, because we've all seen like those really elaborate like star field sequences, the camera moving and 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 all the you can obviously see the stars creeping across the sky and all that sort of stuff. But no one had done that really, at least yeah. to that degree. I don't th- I don't think anyone had really done it like that yeah. combination of ninety one. Yeah, you know, probably not. Not certainly not in the not in like the that, and especially not on sixty five. You know, yeah. and uh, and you know like their producer would stay up all night. It would take them eight hours to program shots. They had like a 236, uh, I can't remember what brand of computer it was, but it was like completely archaic, like just dedicated to their motion control system and, and, uh, or 286, not 236. Yeah. What's a 236? Oh, 286 is, um, yeah, it's just a processor, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So two, they had a 286 processor and it was just this system. And, uh, yeah, it's really special. Like you, it's funny. The, I, I try not to you know, to overly intellectualize like what they're trying to say and and you just you just want to sort of allow it to to hit you, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it's hard to sort of verbalize but I think some people spend too much time trying to analyze what they're trying to say and and rather just sort of like feel it, you know? Yeah. I wonder if that isn't because Koyaanisqatsi specifically and Pawakatsi have messages. Like they're designed to mm-hmm. tell uh, to to articulate something to tell the story that we have to assemble as we watch it and yeah, yeah Baraka uh, Kronos maybe from the title just had me expecting a yeah. process of time but Kronos oh, was IMAX wasn't it I think so. I want to yeah. say yes um, or it was sufficiently large format yeah, yeah I know it was large I know it was a large I format think it must I, have been. Been. I think it was IMAX yeah. though um, but yeah. uh, but Baraka and Samsara they just exist really they're yeah. Uh, Ebert described them as travelogues that let you contemplate what it is you're seeing, which I think is a really, like, that's the basic format, the yeah. basic purpose of, of uh, travelogue. But it, it immerses you in a different way than uh, the, than the Katsi trilogy, mm-hmm. just because Fricky's not Reggio and he's got a different idea. He's got something else he's pursuing. 
and it's they're like spaces for contemplation yeah um and certainly his fascination with large format means he wants you to to just luxuriate in the image but look at every detail there's you know there's a there's a, a a five minute sequence it's the cover of samsara the five minute sequence of arm movements of this one incredible dancer yeah and you just stare and you don't really think about what it means you're not encouraged to you're just encouraged to analyze to to look at the image and it's it's a really unique experience and i'm more of a reggio guy yeah but even reggio starts doing what Fricky is doing his his last project. Visitors is just shots of people's faces. Really, uh, in I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's gorgeous. This uh, I, I want to say eight K. It might have only been four K, but just yeah. high resolution digital image in an anamorphic frame of people staring out of the screen at you uh, with a Philip Glass score that's supposed to be played live yeah. with an orchestra. I saw it at TIFF. I guess it would have been two thousand and thirteen or fourteen, and it's just otherworldly. And it brought me back around to especially what... with the live. I think you need that's the sort of thing though you need to see, but the 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 score needs to be for, performed live. Yeah, you need the energy of it. It just, I mean, you know, you can DTSX or Dolby Atmos yeah. with people, but it it really is a different experience when it is. It's yeah. happening. Yeah, but it brought me back around to what Fricky is doing with static shots and and the 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 expanse of time that he uses. Yeah, the way that we experience the image that he's put in front of us, which is not what the Katsi films do. They rush you through the whole yeah. world. This is a much more stop and start kind of rhythm. Mm-hmm. I, did, I haven't seen Nakoi Katsi. Um, a lot more about mechanization. Yeah, yeah. Like there's the, I think Katsi is a Hopi word that means life. And then there's, so there's life out of balance, I think is the word. That's, be wrong. yeah, no, that's the first I know word. that Nakoi Katsi is, is life at war or something. Um, but I don't know what uh, Pawakwatsi is. I, I um, and to spend. I have. I don't think I've seen Pawakwatsi. Uh, is it Pawakwatsi? Right? Pawakwatsi. Yeah, yeah. Pawakwatsi. Um, I haven't seen that since. Yeah, it's been twenty years or something. These these films taught me literally how to see the world, or it showed yeah. me another way to see the world. What is it? It's like that. Um, that interconnectedness mm-hmm. that we, and this is not some like hippy dippy bullshit because I'm not. That's not who I am. Yeah. But there is. Like, we are literally created out of stardust. You know what I mean? Like, all the major elements, almost all of the yeah, major no, that, elements, almost all of them. That's how matter works, absolutely. Is, yeah. is like, came from the heart of stars, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and even on a, on a smaller level, you know, I know some people that talk about um, how this is, it's influenced or it's making a case for deep ecology um yeah i'm not I'm, I'm i've never studied that you know but um i think from what i understand it's sort of the opposite of that uh of that sort of anthropocentric type of environmentalism where it's everything is just focused around the humans and the impact right. of, of the environment on us and you see that a lot with global warming too, like how it's it's always framed in a way at how it affects humanity, as if right. we're the only, um, as if we're the only, you know, living species on this planet. You know what I mean? And not just not to discount because it's obviously you know, I'm a human and I don't want to have to see you know I think we need to do something about this and sure and you know no one wants to see you know this the migration associated with that will be associated with global warming is going to be that's going to transform the world. I mean, like, it's happening already. It's happening already. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, but I think, I think there's a whole bunch of like, again, like hippie stuff that like in, within deep ecology and like, uh, sort of, um, uh, dismissing modern physics in favor of some, I don't know, new agey oh, sort of shit. Like guys. that's where I start to take an issue with that, you know, cause yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I believe in science, you know, but I do think that we need to start looking at our world, uh, in a much more, 
I hate this word too, holistic, but yeah. a much more holistic sort of right. way. But in know? the literal definition of the In the term. literal, yeah, 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 yeah. Not this mind-body like sort of shit, but like, yeah. you know, we're... I, as this, this, there's a single. We're a single species on this planet that is radically transforming this planet um, at an astounding rate, much to the detriment of every other form of life here, and yeah. it scares the shit out of me. And that's what I think. It, this doesn't get too much into it, like the the this film, you know. But it is a part of it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Well, any movie that spends that much time in the natural world and observing people moving through it is going to make you think about the world yeah. and the way that it I mean even now I you know it's not the same those landscapes most of those aren't the same as they were 25 years ago the, no. the world has radically changed to the Absolutely. point where this is now not just a documentary but it's a historical document of what that looked like when the yeah. camera was there at that time yeah um, yeah I, what you were saying about uh, the global perspective I think people you know, when when you're trying to make um, when you're trying to make a, a comprehensible argument about climate change, you you bring it to people in the you won't be able to live in New York City in yeah. 25 years kind of way, uh, as opposed to the world will change because you have to get the listener to yeah. put themselves in there. It's it's about generating empathy, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's also ridiculous to think we're destroying the world. We're just making ourselves extinct. Yeah, absolutely. It's, the it's, world will be fine. The world will just keep. It on will keep us. on going on. Well, you can see, like, even they show it in. Not to go back to Cambodia again, but you look at there's one temple, and I can't remember. I think it's Priyakon is the name of the temple. Um, but they've just allowed it to be completely consumed by the jungle. Right. And oh, that's right. Yes, the reclamation. Yeah, and we're talking. This is a period. That's I think that's twelfth century. Um. So you look at how much that place has changed uh, in those 800 years, which sounds like a lot, but it's it's a it's a mere blip in true time. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. Uh, and and it's I I don't really I'm not worried about the the planet like in that regard, but I am worried about us as a species, and I'm worried about more importantly, I'm worried about the sort of world that our children and children's children will inhabit. Like, I, so I've been fortunate. You know, I grew up in a, a, again, small town. It's not a cultural mecca by any stretch of the imagination, right. but the, 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 on the upside of that, I, you know, I, there was a forest across the street from my house. And it's like, we didn't, I watched TV as a kid, but wasn't really watching TV as a kid. We were constantly outside playing, like running around the fort, building cabins or whatever, you know? And, and that was, it's an important thing for kids to, I feel bad for kids that are living in, in the city that they just don't really, aside from High Park, you know, the odd, Oh, just our green space. Yeah, yeah. So you just you don't, yeah. you don't. They don't have access really to that unless you're really wealthy and then you can afford to do your, you know, yearly summer trips to Algonquin or right. whatever. Yeah. People with cottages, cottages, with and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, but just the you know, for someone the family that's just like just getting by in this city, you know, you, what? I, I feel bad for those kids. You know that. Uh, yeah, it's a different, uh, and so that that. Yeah, I am. It makes me really worried about, you know, these things like deforestation and, you know, our fish stocks and our oceans will be depleted by mid-century. You yeah, know, like I, all I these... can't imagine what that world is going to look yeah. like. I mean, I, I guess I can. It'll be quiet runner. It's right here. Yeah, <laughs> this lovely thing. It is kind of amazing that the the new Blade Runner has the the vision of. Have you seen this before yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, just that depleted world where people grow maggots for protein and everything is dust and misery. And, and I thought it was really like, smart, like how they portrayed like a potential, like there's those, those overhead shots when he's flying into Los Angeles and you just see those, it's just those deep, deep, deep caverns, which essentially are just spaces between buildings. That yeah. just go, and it just, as far as the eye can see and it's as a visual spectacle, I thought, I thought it was really, um, I thought it was incredible. Uh, but yeah, it is th- these things. These things were, and that's when I first saw it. You know, I did have I was, it was a bit of an existential crisis for me. <laughs> like, oh my god, we're all doomed. And um, what scenes stand out for you in that in the in that film? Blade Runner or Baraka? Oh no, no in Baraka. Yeah, yeah not, just not Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> that's ambiguous. Let's switch this up. It's amazing because having just watched this recently, 
it all blurs together into sequence after sequence, mm-hmm. which isn't a bad thing. It's just that it's hard to pick and choose. It's hard, yeah, yeah. And they, I don't remember the transition points. So were you, well. We were talking about reading reviews for this, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I went back and read some reviews too. And somebody made a some uh, critic made a comment that it would have been much easier if they had it's like subtitled where actually each of the locations are. I'm just like, are you serious? Yeah. You spend all your time. It would be a distraction, but I mean, I get but there it. should be like a, a like a, a version of it on the on the where you can just like put like it so you know exactly where it is. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. it's like the Frederick Wiseman's thing of never identifying people when they're speaking, which is fine in Ex Libris when you're watching, you know, Elvis Costello at a at a at a gala event, but yeah. when it's somebody reading a book that you've never heard of before and yeah. you don't you don't know the you don't recognize the book or the speaker, therefore the author, you're just completely lost. Yeah, here, uh, he thinks it would be too disruptive. Um, to identify everyone. That's always been his argument. It's like, yeah. eh, it would be kind of egalitarian and everyone would be on the same plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't expect it. That's, that's a different scenario altogether. You need that. Like, yeah. <laughs> it also helps provide context as well. And Sure. Yeah. But but in, in Baraka, in this sort of thing, you do drift in a way that's yeah. really interesting, but it also retroactively blurs the thing in my yeah. mind. So I'm, I'm just looking at this thing now and going, oh, that's right. California, Cambodia. It's, um, <laughs> this, these aren't, Chapters. These are just a map. Yeah. And then you flip it over on the back, and yeah, I think. And here we are, number thirteen, chickens. Easily the most memorable sequence, Absolutely. to my mind, because it's just so non-judgmentally horrifying. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense, to watch. And and Ebert wrote about it really, really eloquently. You're just watching them have the only moment of freedom they're ever going to experience. Yeah. And it is just stunning to see it presented. Almost an anonymously, like you, you don't really see human interaction. You see people, but you well, don't... it's juxtaposed. The, the the brilliance of that scene, uh, those that uh, the sort of life cycle of uh, of uh, battery hens, and it was juxtaposed with cities teeming with people. Mm-hmm. And at one point, um, at one point in this process, uh, you know the the beaks are oh, God, cauterized. Yeah. Yeah, cotters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they don't peck each other to death in their little battery hands. Sort of blunted. And he all and and Fricky, he sort of alternates these scenes with um, shots of uh, of crowded uh, cities and and people and stuff. And and it, and it's the implications are very clear. It's like you know, humans have as much value um, in our sort of westernized society as these chickens do to industrialize farming it's and and even takes it further um and they care so little for these chickens you know it's just like they're just i don't know not that they care so little i think you're just desensitized by it you know yeah well you i mean it's very clinical it's just yeah the people sorting them the people working with them have no relationship to them whatsoever they push them through as quickly as possible it's sort of like how our society just pushes people through life, you know, and right. how they, that sequence is just phenomenal. Um, it yeah. really stuck with me. I mean, and I was saying earlier that the film feels ambivalent about a lot of things and doesn't seem to take positions. That one yeah. seemed pretty on the nose. Yeah, 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 uh, but it has, But it has to be because after all of this other stuff where you're really just watching life play itself out, you're seeing the disruption of life. You know, yeah. These chickens don't have, I mean... Very few animals can be said to have agency, but what you're seeing is this breeding process where there's absolutely nothing for them to do. There's nothing. There's no purpose. They're simply being made to be food. It's a commodity. That's yeah. all it is. It's a. It's a. It's a human. Uh, sorry, it's a biological commodity. Yeah, and that we've created this incredible organization around it. We have, and and I don't mean commercial organization. I mean we have made it possible mm-hmm. to factory farm on this scale. Yeah. I think I'm trying to think if that was the first time I'd ever really encountered the concept. Yeah. And it's just it's so like it's so artfully awful. Mm-hmm. You just you you the the editorial technique, the framing, it's it's a it's a great experience cinematically, but you're seeing this nightmarish reality that presumably has been there all along. We were always capable of it. We just got to this point where the technology allowed it to happen, yeah. and it's just so. Oh, it's so despairing. Yeah, and, and awful. And I think the end of that sequence is. Uh, I think it's it's a s- slow uh, zoom um, looking through a window. I think it may be Fifth Avenue in New York. I think you're right. As the lights are changing in the cars, and then you just have this like increasingly this 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 breathing sound in perfect rhythm to the and it's. Oh, that was just 
that sort of blew me away. It's a little literal, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but but, but it's, it really is effective, you know? Yeah, and because he doesn't do it that often in the yeah. film, because he doesn't make, you know, start grabbing a highlighter too often, yeah. it really lands because yeah. you're trapped with it. I mean, that, that's the... That's the difference between experiencing something, even in a, a room like this, where you can devote yourself to the image, and a movie theater where you're surrounded with other people processing the same yeah. idea at once. The crowd experience, you know, as important as the orchestra is to, to a live performance, yeah. I think seeing a movie with an audience, seeing a documentary, a film of ideas with an audience, and feeling the room absorb an idea, you know, like everybody's like a microsecond behind yeah. or ahead. I, I love that experience. And it oh, me too. Just, it's, the... it's so eerie and, and unique. I guess live theater probably does the same thing, you know. When it, when a, yeah, when... the thing I, I I like though the thing that I love about film though is it forces a certain perspective onto you. Yeah, that, like whether choice of lens or whatever you know. Whereas theater is just a bit more, um, I don't know. And I, I shouldn't say that. Well, no, there's it, a lot of. But I just but that, that's my preference. Because, yeah. It's not that I don't like to think for myself or I don't like to, but I do like especially as a director being able to force people into you know you need to pay attention to this right now right. Or, or or whatever yeah, yeah. well Isn't, cinema is about vision right like yeah. it's about literally being directed to a yeah. point by the by the film you're watching whereas theater yeah you're just you know your experience of it will be different depending on whose face yeah. you can see just what angle you're sitting Absolutely. in the theater i keep thinking that the you know like douglas trumbull talks about the future of of um, high frame rate as the the idea of creating a window to the event that you're watching, but he never seems to, you know, we talked about it. High frame rate, do you mean like high speed photography? Or? Yeah, like yeah. 120 or 240 yeah. frames a second. What yeah. he did with Billy Lynn's long half time yeah. walk. But um, what he keeps missing in the conversation is that creating this window, windows are fixed. Like movies yeah. movies have perspective and, and the lenses change and the angles change and close-ups and, and mid-shots, everything about that ruins the concept of the window because we are aware that mm -hmm. the image is changing. If you, you know, imagine doing a high frame rate live broadcast of, of the National Theater that you could watch anywhere in the world mm -hmm. from roughly the same place you would be, the camera would be sitting, like you could yeah. experience a, a fixed image of a play clearly and without any distortion or, or, or yeah. lag. That, that seems and without to be, motion blur. Anyway. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. seems to be where this is going. Like that's what that could be. I could I could stomach that like a live performance where it's expected like just to have that feeling of like hyper reality. Mm. You know, I, I have a I can't do it in film, and it's just because I'm, we're so used to seeing things at twenty four frames where you do have that very subtle just a bit of motion blur. Yeah. You know that. That to me has that sort of filmic quality to right. it, and then anything other feels like a soap opera. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like no, an it's expensive exactly. soap opera. Or yeah, and it was amazing how the resolution of the image actually works against the concept of suspension of disbelief. Yeah, everybody, like the actors, look like they're waking, wearing makeup when they get shot. The Humvee looks like a toy. The props look like props. A wooden fence that's painted looks fake. It's like you're watching on television where people have like the that motion setting like. A, the proprietary yeah. of like true motion or whatever it is based yeah. on the television manufacturer and everything just feels fake oh it looks horrible yeah it looks and it must horrible. be like I imagine it's sort of akin to that I haven't seen anything yeah that's shot. what watching the, yeah. the Hobbit looked like at 60 yeah Billy Lynn looks looked different again because it's just yeah it's, it looks it looked wrong yeah. it looked wrong in a lot of different ways it didn't look wrong in a Best Buy demo mode kind of way yeah um, but there's just something off, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's you know, to bring it back to Baraka, it is an amazing argument for photochemical film, mm -hmm. uh, for resolution, for large format, because you just, you just can't beat it. I just, I saw, just this past week, I saw Dunkirk in IMAX uh, 70 and Murder on the Orient Express, which was filmed in 65. Did they film in 65? Yeah. Was it shot on film? Was, or was yeah, it an no, eerie no. 65? Yeah, photochemical 65 oh, really? film. Uh, Kodak, I think, specifically, because there was yeah. a logo at the end. And we saw it in what I think was 4K. And it's gorgeous, but film is film. And any digital approximation a, is yeah. going to look different somehow. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's not to say that I, I'm not a purist. Like, my last film was shot on, you know, an area, Alexa. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, I love the way it looked. You know, we did use, you know, older Panavision uh, lenses, which, and they, there's an inherent soft. I think, I think the death blow is, is the super sharp, obviously digital film with like really modern 
lenses that are just so sharp and just everything feels like you just feet every pore and that pulls me like i yeah. i like a bit of softness to it you know even shooting like we we projected um, we, um sweet virginia's and we only did a 2k master but even if it's projected 4k when I mean, it guess it's being up res but it's there's still like a little bit of a softness to it that i actually prefer over just a pure 4k um uh, that would prefer over like finishing it in 4k just yeah. by shooting in it sometimes clarity is not the best thing no like, it's just not always no. the way to go um these films you know they they need a certain well haze is the wrong word but the mm -hmm. textures of fog and steam and smoke and and all of that stuff really matters and not I mean, to contradict just, just look at the look i know the water spray and think about the way that shot looked there there is something and again seeing this on 70 there's something about the um the between the color saturation, the contrast ratio, the uh, uh, the sharpness to it too, you know, not to contradict myself, but there's, in terms of the broader image, you know what I mean, the sharp, you can see so far back in sure, certain yeah, depth of yeah. field, you know, and things, it's, it's, it's really hard to, and that's why I really recommend if anyone hasn't seen it, if, you know, obviously if this, I don't know when the next time this is going to come here, being projected in 70 millimeter, um, but the Blu-ray, because what they did was they scanned... It's an 8K uh, scan, really. They did an 8K scan. So you've got like eight, over 8,000 pixels horizontally across this image, scanning the 65 millimeter negative. Mm -hmm. And they oversampled it. So when they, it, when they took each of those frames and converted it to an HD frame for the Blu-ray, um, it retains more detail than had they had they just gone and just did an HD scan of the 8K negative. Okay. Of the of sorry of the okay. 65 millimeter negative. So it's arguably, and I'm not sure if if um, uh, what's his face uh, Tarantino did this for the Hateful Eight Blu-ray. I'm not sure, or I don't know if Christopher Nolan's done it for any of his the segments that he's shot for the Batman films or right. whatever or, or Interstellar. Um, but it's arguably it's one of the best. Blu-rays ever produced because and it, take, it took them like three weeks of scanning that twenty-four hours a day just to scan the the negative. You know, yeah, it's the Blu-ray is phenomenal. Like it really is worth seeing. Obviously, seeing it on seventy is one thing, but just in terms sure. of Blu-rays, it's it's really really great. You yeah. just don't have all the digital banding that you would see like um, if like when I know they had it on Netflix a while back, and it's oh. just like yeah, there's no way that compression is no. going to serve that image. Yeah. I, Trumbull once told me, I guess this would have been the first time we talked, so maybe 2010 uh, or 2011, he said he would rather watch 2001 projected on Blu-ray than 70, which I found obscene. Uh, but he said he just wanted the static image. He doesn't like judder, and that to him was the key. Oh, because of the registration on like having the image projected? Yeah, just yeah. even even wobbling yeah. the frame. He, can, he says he sees it and it takes him out of it completely and it, it, it offends his eye. You and only really see it in titles, though. That's it, like unless you're like you get consumed with the story, you know. What yeah, I mean? exactly. like you see it in titles, and I, I like. And people try to emulate it now for. I know, and they're lying. But to it's me just like, just oh, tell. yeah, just don't do it. <laughs> I saw something, some horror movie had tried to, to duplicate like a '70s camera shake uh, with the copyright line moving. Yeah, and it's like, okay, I get what you're doing. It's a cute little retro touch. Better not do this with the end titles because but it's a gimmick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just stop it. Yeah, just shoot it on film. That if it really that's what you want to. Yeah, we're in this weird place where uh, digital has been around just long enough for a generation to grow up with it in their formative years. Yeah, and for the first time they're trying, kind of trying to take back. Yeah, celluloid, but they're misappropriating it. They all the wrong things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the you know, like, just the thing that I the thing that I remember being the most. Uh, aware of as a kid was was watching an optical drop when you know like the quality of a yep. shot changes because there's an effect in it yep. and you're seeing the step down yeah that we don't have that anymore no no which is done yeah which is great because it's all digital post mm -hmm. but it used to be that you're oh, somebody I can't remember, it was probably James Cameron somebody was complaining about the optical drop because he was convinced that it taught audiences to expect a jump scare or something in that shot because if the texture had suddenly shifted yeah. part of your brain is like oh I know why this is happening even if you're not conscious yeah. of it and I realize I don't own the Blu-ray of Baraka and I'm going to go buy that now uh, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's one of those I must have I, I know it. I've seen it 
it's worth it's worth having. I in wonder your, if well, I got it in, in this collection here. Yeah, exactly. You need to. Have, well, it's weird need. that I have Samsara but not Baraka. I wonder if I did have it once and then just gave it MPI. Away uh, it's MPI, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they released they released the Blu-ray as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I don't, if I can't figure out where it is, I will go get another one. Yeah. Um, but the experience. Well, this is what we were saying about the theatrical experience. The experience of watching it larger than life is one thing. Watching it at home. It's the kind of experience that you really like. It's the it's the kind of movie that demands your your full attention. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's diminished in the memory, uh, like the sort of the collective cinematic memory, as lesser than the Katsi films, just because it can't be shown as easily. Yeah, you know, like, unless you bring. I think it's still immersive though. I yeah. I used to. I don't have the same sound system that I used to have uh, ten years ago, or when the what seven or eight years ago, whenever the Blu-ray came out. Yeah. Um, but I did have a really good you know 46 inch plasma television and a really great sound system and and it was it was still immersive you know um yeah i don't i guess they're just varying degrees you know yeah uh, we were talking about dunkirk earlier i went to see i saw it twice uh, i saw it on i saw the 4k projection and then i went uh, to go see the 70 i didn't see it on imax but i saw um the 70 millimeter and while the 70 millimeter was great in that the sound was better. Uh, it was one of those um, AVX theaters oh, yeah. uh, with the 4K, and I always thought that. It could, and then I saw the 70 millimeter at Varsity. That's where I saw it. The first yeah, time. yeah, and it, this, the, that room is cavernous, and it doesn't. It, it sort of reverberates a bit. Yeah, it wasn't made for. I found it better. Stuff. I enjoyed the 4K experience, uh, the 4K projection better because the sound was just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, well, I saw it at the Cinesphere last week. Yeah. In, in oh, that, no, that's another new sound altogether. system. That yeah. was, I, I gotta say, um, I, I, as as much as I scoff at the idea of, oh, you have to see it this way, that film is designed to... You have to see it this way. Yeah, yeah. it's an assault. Like, yeah. It's designed to overwhelm you. And in the Did they redo all the interior as well? Like, is it Yeah, all... it's clean, it's oh, new. Exactly. This is going to drop... In fact, when this when this episode launches, it will still be playing there because it's there... Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights through November. Wow. Okay, so cool. go. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I just want to go and see interest. that room. It is, yeah, it's really nice. I've never new. seen a film there, even when it was open. Really? Yeah. yeah. New chairs, new sound. Wow. Uh, they, they've doubled the sound channels from 6 to 12, although I don't know how many speakers are involved. Yeah. Um, it's clean. It's nice. It's the it's the nicest I've seen it in 20 years. Cool. And, um, and Dunkirk, yeah, Dunkirk in IMAX 70 is, uh, the aspect ratio is like 144 for most of the film. Yeah. As opposed to the 70 mil, which was 2.2. Yeah. And I guess the AVX is like, what, 180 something? It's, it's, I know it's taller than the 70, but not as tall as IMAX. I can't, I can't say, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm trying to. It's probably consistent with the 65 millimeters. So maybe once. I think my ears were bleeding and I was just focusing on that. (laughs) Oh no, it was, it was an incredible experience. And that like, you know, what people are doing with large format now is, is really remarkable. Mm -hmm because we finally reached a point where the technology allows you to make the movie yeah. you want to make just with bigger film. Yeah. Um, but as a documentary uh, environment, it's sort of falling away because IMAX has taken over that completely. You know, there, there are no narrative documentaries anymore being shot this way, the way that Baraka was, the yeah. way that all the, I've already repeatedly called it non-narrative. It is a film with a point of view. And maybe... Maybe the last one. I mean, really, of its kind. I don't see... Well, see, there, there are films that... And not to compare the two, because they're very... Like the BBC Natural History stuff that they do, like right. Planet Earth and all that sort of stuff. But they're different. They're, there's, they're still an, an enormous amount of work goes into those films, and, and, um, and they are beautiful to look at, but they're, the point of view from Baraka is just... It's a different... It's really is its own entity... And I don't think I think that's that's probably the last of its kind uh, shot like that, and and introducing the world to um, um, at least from a uh, uh, a visual standpoint uh, to something that they really haven't seen up to that point. Yeah, it's I, I don't think that will 
happen again because I, I, it's not to say that we've seen it all you know what I mean but I think now as we move forward it's all about different ways to experience something rather than like oh how did they get that shot you know like yeah it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's different now that, that that's the next level is you know probably like VR you know where you're completely once VR gets to that point where it's photorealistic and you can immerse yourself in an environment and really experience it in 360 degrees you know all around you you know that that'll be like the next like step up for um for something uh for something like that i think yeah i've seen some impressive vr stuff in terms of like representational documentary but it always feels like with the with the the narrative pieces that they're trying to push you into action it it's like they use game mechanics more than narration and or narrative drives and i just find myself resisting that yeah. somehow like, it's like it's more like look what we can do yeah. instead of just yeah, allowing everything's the story a, to yeah. everything's a demo yeah there's no which is great with the, and I guess that's just part of like when a new uh, to technology is being you know introduced to the world you know it's it's all about look what we can do yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. but I don't know if it's necessarily the best way to tell a story um yeah, uh, and it's the same thing for 3D as well. It becomes like a, a gimmick. Although I, the one 3D film that I really want to see, and I missed it when it was here years ago, was uh, the Herzog. Uh, yeah, I knew you were going to say Cave that. of Forgotten Dreams. Yeah, that does work. Is that an IFC in New York? The other day, the big poster, and I, I for some reason just forgot about it, and, and I was like, oh man, I, that's I got to see that. Like, I hope that somebody brings that back because that's something I'd like to see in 3D. Did you see it? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw is the it good? TIFF in 3D, and it is. You know, it's. It's more interesting as, again, as a walkthrough of this yeah. space than it is, like, the, the questions he tries to raise are not that interesting. Yeah. I just wanted to go back and look at the cave. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and as that, since, you know, yeah. since it's physically no longer possible to go there, yeah. because the, the, the space is too delicate to withstand much more human visitation, yeah. this is the only way I'll ever experience it, unless there's a VR version. Yeah. But it's... And that is beautiful because you're just seeing this thing and, and the 3D process makes it a little darker, which actually works for the cave because yeah. it feels like a secret. It feels like something you're not mm-hmm. supposed to be experiencing. Yeah. That that was amazing. Um, but in terms of 3D documentary, I can't, you know, other than no, maybe spending an hour just sort of drifting through a veld somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> But again, there's no, there's no beyond yeah, what you yeah, see, yeah. and and I assume it's just so expensive to mount something like that that people won't bother unless they know they can follow this one. Yeah, like with that OJ, uh, that documentary, that Ezra, um, Edelstein, his last name? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that he did. Would that have been better in three days? Like, no, nah, no. <laughs> well, maybe for the crime photographs. Yeah, maybe just to give yeah. you the sense of it. But that's where VR, well, VR technology like, to go through that exactly, sort of pawing through the. Like, imagine a serial in VR, like that kind of yeah. killer app for that format. Did you listen to Dirty John? No. Oh, we'll talk no. about that after. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so well, this this really does organically kind of bring us to the the final question of the podcast, which is yeah. always, you know, like what if anything of Baraka have you borrowed or absorbed or stolen or you know for my own work into your own work? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> like it really, it just an appreciation for large format photography mm-hmm. and and. Um, but it, that's what I, I started the podcast by saying. Like it's, yeah, it's yeah. really this film. It's more about the impact that it's had on me as a as a person than uh, than about influencing my work. But surely that's you know it's the same thing ultimately. Like your perspective. I guess so. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, that, I, I, mean, I always think like technically, like how is this affecting? Yeah. Like, am I going to steal this shot or something like that, or or this technique? Um, from that from that point of view, no, not at all. Um, I was trying to make the argument in my head that the the rodeo flashbacks at the beginning and end of Sweet Virginia are somehow the juxtaposition. The high speed photography. Yeah, here's the here's the thing with high speed photography. And this will, this is the last thing I'll this is not to go too far off the topic, but I, I think it's the magic of it's become so ubiquitous. Uh, it was a different when you when you had to use like a Photosonics camera. I don't know if you're familiar with Photosonics. They they were like they their cameras were designed. They designed head-up displays for oh, aircraft, okay. but yeah. they also make they made 35, 65 millimeter, and 16 millimeter cameras for the U.S. military to shoot missile tests and all that sort of stuff. Okay. So they had like all this. There's a scene in I think what is 
and snatch is when Brad Pitt's punch and he see him come in and it's at a high speed. And that was all 35. That was like a, I think it was a Photosonics action master. Okay. And I shot, uh, I did this broken social scene video that was 16 millimeter Photosonics and you had to, no video tap or anything like that. And you have to pull the mag off and you have to look through and the image is flipped upside down. But as soon as you put the mag back on, it's like you're shooting blind. Okay. You know, it's amazing. And you hear like the sound of the camera too. It's like, it's like, as why is so fast. You know, you, the last thing you want is a camera jam there. And then I feel bad for any camera assistants ever had to deal with that because film just moves so fast through it. It was something really special to try and get stuff like that slow motion. And it, but it, it's now with like phantom cameras, like they're right. God, you can shoot high speed, well, not as high speed, but you can like on your iPhone, on phone, you know, yeah. it's sort of lost its magic, you know, um, if anything, I just thought that I wanted to draw out those sequences and just make them feel dreamlike, and that was the reason why we shot a little bit of a higher frame rate. But, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't know. It hasn't really... I think I can separate my own opinions about... Because it's affected me in a way that... It, the way that... Uh, in how I sort of view the world and, um, and culture. And um, I, I... My... The films that I, well, at least this last one anyway, is very sort of separate from that. Like, I don't, um, I don't know how much that, that would have influenced me uh, in making Sweet Virginia. Mm -hmm. But uh, but still, nonetheless, I still love going back and watching it. Yeah. I mean, certainly letting the film change you or having had the yeah. film change you, that's enough. I mean, that's, that's enough. That's yeah, more yeah, than yeah. That's reason. more than most films uh, uh the effect that that has on you is greater than most films that I've ever seen. So yeah, I mean, God, I would have had Fricky sign the uh, the Kianoscotti Blu-ray if I'd met him. Yeah. I well, next time I go to LA, I'm gonna. I'm, I thought about going. Now that I, I want to get in touch with them, just to go by and say hi, and just and I'm not sure they would be open to that. Uh, but I would like to just at least try anyway. Oh yeah. yeah. Buy him a drink if nothing yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. I think and if I ever do, honestly, if I ever do, I'll get your copy for you. <laughs> I, I do. I honestly yeah. believe that, like, literally, the least we owe the people, the artists who genuinely change us, is yeah. that kind of thank you. Absolutely. And they're probably tired of it. Yeah. But you know, that's have, too bad. You have to try. <laughs> yeah. My thanks to Jamie Dagg, whose new film Sweet Virginia is in theaters and on VOD in the U.S. right now from IFC Films. And Elevation Pictures is releasing it in Canada next Friday, December 1st. It's very good, and you should check it out. I'll even go so far as to say it's a better showcase for John Bernthal than The Punisher. Don't at me. Jamie's not on Twitter, but you can find him on Instagram at Jamie M. Dagg. All one word. J-A-M-I-E-M-D-A-G-G. You can find Baraka on Blu-ray and DVD from MPI Home Video in that gorgeous 8K scan we were talking about earlier. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play, but honestly, why would you want to watch that in anything other than true HD? As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you'd like to leave a review up on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever, that would be greatly appreciated, uh, especially since there's someone else out there biting my bit. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.